listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and I'm alive. And that's good news as far as I'm concerned every day, but even more so given our recording location this week, which is at a spot that's got two six-inch turret guns on a Royal Navy light cruiser pointed at it. You can safely consider yourself a true London nerd if you already know the location for this week's show. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a long through from your front door. Hello, we've been to quite a few glamorous locations, I would say, now on the podcast, and we're going to continue in that vein today. We've come to the luxurious, opulent surroundings of Scratchwood Services on the M1, with me huddled into a corner over a tiny table with a takeaway salad, Matt Brown, the editor-at-large at Londonists and author of a tome that we're going to be exploring today. Hi, Matt. Hi there, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. Um, What are we doing here? I'm really super excited to be here, actually. I'm probably the only person who's ever been excited to come to Scratchwood uh, for several reasons. First of all, it's not actually called Scratchwood anymore. It's the London Gateway Services. That's not that exciting. Secondly, I have this life rule where I have to go in a new building every single day, and I've never been to this building yet. So personally, I've ticked off a little thing in my own own peculiar spreadsheet of places. And thirdly, there's a really interesting piece of trivia connected with this station. <laughs> and that's all for today. Yeah, I thought you were going to. Oh, right, no, no, no. Plunge in. Well, Scratchwood Services often appears in trivia books about London. You may have heard of HMS Belfast. It's a battleship on the River Thames. It's a tourist attraction these days. And it's said that the guns of HMS Belfast point at Scratchwood Service Station. So we're actually under fire right now, or potentially under fire from these guns. Now, HMS Belfast is open to the public, isn't it? And they, I know, are particularly keen on inviting little children to come and mess around with the gun turrets. We could be executed by a toddler on the podcast as well. Wouldn't that make for good radio? Yes, all that, that presumes that the editing is all going to get done nicely, even after our demise. A word or two to describe the surroundings here. Imagine a crossroads of franchise stores, Waitrose, WH Smith, Subway, add in a sprinkling of pay-to-use cash machines and a little corner there for anybody who can't manage to go three miles out of London without playing a slot machine. It is a particularly peculiar place, especially when you think about the location. We're only just outside London. In fact, we're technically in London still here. Why would you choose to stop on the motorway so soon after leaving or so close to your destination of London? I've never quite understood the purpose behind this station. And we, we looked up Scratchwood as well to try and find out a little bit about it. And it's got a bit of a peculiar history as well. Yeah, I don't know the full details of this. But I understand that shortly after the Second World War, there was going to be another major road cutting through the area. And the roundabout that leads off the M1 to this station would have been a major crossroads, a major interchange. And perhaps that's why the service station was built here in the first place. You also discovered this was a prime spot, apparently, for paying respects to Princess Di as her funeral cortege passed by. Yeah, was that back in 97 or something? This is all according to Wikipedia, it should be said, uh, citation needed. But lots of people gathered here in 97 to watch the funeral go past on the M1. 
So this whole guns pointed at Scratchwood services is a, is a true thing. Uh, the book that we're talking about today, Everything You Know About London Is Wrong, by some fellow called Matt Brown, takes a different tack, as the name suggests. And I've got to say, a lot of these facts that are mentioned here are ones that have been served up as gospel truth by guests on this show. What I'm going to do today, with your permission, Matt, I'd like to run before you some of the ones that caught my eye from the book and explore those, but also out the facts that we've had on the show that I can see that you've got in your book that are, in fact, incorrect. Fine with me. There's plenty in there to dig into. London is the capital of the United Kingdom, is the statement here, and you're going to debunk, to some degree, that statement. Well, this is probably the cheekiest one in the whole book because, of course, London is the capital not only of England but of the wider UK at least presently who knows what's going to happen in the years ahead it's a fast changing situation isn't it but yeah this is a cheeky one so of course we are the capital but it's never been properly established in charter or documented in any strict sense it's by tradition and custom that London is the capital of the United Kingdom and England Uh, of course it's the largest city in the land by a long way has been historically since the 12th century it's been the centre of government and chief centre of the monarchy for most of that time as well So by all degrees and measurements, it is the capital of the UK. It's just never been properly chartered. Do we know if previous capitals were? No, I think there's never actually been one. Often it's said that Winchester was the technical capital of of the country before London. I think to some extent that's true, but some historians will maintain that the capital was more of a... or the court used to roam around the country rather than being fixed in one location in medieval times. There are some broader ideas in this section the measure of the city about the dimensions of london about what constitutes london i wonder if we should split those open a little bit well i probably a good place to start is the idea a lot of us have in our head that the m25 marks the boundary of the city particularly as we're on a motorway service station as we record this so the m25 it's a good kind of broadly speaking measure of London Uh, people often think everything inside is London but it's not quite true there are parts of London that extend beyond the M25 there's a small hamlet called North Ockenden which is a sort of mile square and sits outside the M25 by the same token there are large parts within the M25 that are not part of London Um, the place I live Boreham Wood a very sizable conurbation inside the M25 but not part of London same is true of places like Watford and uh, parts of Dartford and other places around the, the, the circle and if London's status is by convention then by what measure are these areas that you're mentioning not part of London so by the measure of the political boundary of Greater London so that's the 32 boroughs plus the square mile which is presided over by the Mayor of London and the Greater London Authority this is the political boundary we call Greater London another way people often describe London or define London to themselves is whether it has a London postcode for example EC2W1 some people maintain if you don't have a postcode like that you're not actually in London so for example uh, I think Wimbledon has its own postcode and certainly Richmond and Kingston have their own postcodes that aren't part of the London postcode uh, system which is fine but I've never thought that the post office is a particularly good um, body to rule on what counts as London or not and in fact there is one postcode that's north of Chingford in uh, Sewardstone I think it is which is outside of what we politically call Greater London but it still has a London postcode so that would disturb that kind of definition. We should start cracking into some of the facts that we've heard on the show and that you are alleging are false. The centre point of London, not centre point in London but the centre point of London is often cited as being Charing Cross. Not true say you? 
Well, this is another one of those cheeky ones where it's true... Ba- is this a book made up of cheeky ones? Yeah, quite often. <laughs> it's true to some extent, but there are many other ways you can define the centre. So Charing Cross is often cited as the very centre of London. It's definitely the place where distances are measured. When we're on the motorway, say it's five miles to London, that's measured from Charing Cross. Uh, more specifically, the statue of Charles I, which stands at the southern end of Trafalgar Square. That is where all distances are measured from and therefore could be considered the centre. However, the geographical centre of London, the place where, and I've done this, if you get a map of London, cut it out, say you've got the shape of London and balance it on a pinhead, the point where it balances, the centre of balance, is actually south of the river in Lambeth, near Lambeth North Tube Station. So that's the very geographical centre of London. And then there are other candidates as well, the London Stone in the square mile. Because that's moved, hasn't it? Only a little bit. So it's currently on Cannon Street. Well, actually, it's currently in the Museum of London as we speak. It's been moved temporarily while they rebuild that building. It's always been somewhere in the Cannon Street area and has been classified as the centre of London in times gone by. Another one here, and well, this is about a central point, but of a different sort. This is a cultural centre point. A true cockney must be born within the sound of bow bells. Well, there are several, several things to dissect here. So first of all, there's some confusion over where Bow Bells are, because there are two Bow Churches at least. There's Bow Church in Cheapside in the Square Mile, and then there's Bromley by Bow out in the East End, which a lot of people might think are the bells Cockneys are associated with because it's more deeply in the East End. But the story of the sound of Bow Bells concerns the church on Cheapside within the Square Mile. Christopher Wren, Wren Church, fabulous building partly destroyed in the second world war and subsequently rebuilt but the tower has always stood now the bells there were silent for about 20 30 years in the 1960s and 70s which meant there were no true cockneys were ever born during that period and these days no true cockney will ever be born probably because there are no maternity units or hospitals within the sound of bow bells so either that means it's not true you don't have to be born within the sound of bow bells to be a cockney or that we'll never have cockneys ever again presumably the atmospheric conditions having changed since the churches were built would also affect whether they are audible or not from a distance yes i mean there are taller buildings all around now which would mask the sound Uh, pollution levels are different there's less fog and smog to carry the sound waves and we've got the roar of traffic everywhere, so bell sounds just won't carry as far either. So far, so good. Some of these other ones, though, that we find throughout the book, now we get to the real meat of it. Some of these seem indisputably true. So, for example, uh, a statue of Eros stands in Piccadilly Circus. Well, this is a very interesting one. So the pedants out there will say that's quite incorrect. Obviously, it's not Eros, it's Anteros. It's a very favourite pedant overturning this. So widely known as Eros... But many people will challenge that and say, no, it's his twin brother, Anteros. But everyone calls it Eros because no one's heard of Anteros. Others will say it's, the, it's an embodiment of the statue of Christian charity, um, which I've never heard outside the context of the Eros statue. I've never heard of this Christ, Christian charity god, whatever. I've looked into this, into the history books, into old newspaper articles. It turns out the Eros thing is a pretty new attribution. There was a survey done in 1912 of Londoners, who do you think the statue on the top of the fountain in Piccadilly Circus is? Only 10% of people said Eros. Back then there were various other answers. Most people thought it was Mercury. Other people thought it was just some random god. Cupid was a popular answer. But Eros was only 10% of the people back in 1912. Now the sculptor of that statue, a man called Gilbert, 
did not actually say who it was supposed to represent, at least not originally. He was building just a, a nice-looking cherubic statue to embody the personal attributes of the Earl of Shaftesbury, who the memorial fountain is named after. So he's, he's, he's suggesting love and freedom and, and peace with this statue, <laughs> rather than it being a specific individual. Have you encountered the picture of the Earl of Shaftesbury at any point? <laughs> I have seen him. He's the quite an austere-looking chap. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get that's that's the uh, picture that was conjured to my mind as well. I'm just trying to imagine the Earl of Shaftesbury knowing that this commission is taking place, and then this being unveiled as a sort of representation. Of <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, I mean, he's he's often the statue is often cited as the god of unrequited love, and I think that was partly. A kind of nod to his kind of upstanding ways rather than being the god of love being Eros or Cupid or Venus or something like that it's a god of unrequited love a more kind of stately Victorian way of doing things uh, we've got one here in the historical bloopers section I'm wondering whether I might be able to guess this one so the statement that you're challenging is the great fire of London was the greatest of all London's fires I was going to hazard a guess at the Blitz you could certainly say that I, I, I would counter that by saying it wasn't one great fire. There was one night where there was a particularly large raid which destroyed a large part of the city. Perhaps that's more seen as bombing and individual fires than one great fire. But there are many historical fires that were bigger than the great fire in terms of destruction and bigger in, the, in terms of the death toll as well. So the great fire, as far as we know, only killed six people. It was probably more. We can't be sure. The historical You can imagine the, the chaos that must have ensued. There weren't proper records kept. But the official figure is six. Now, the biggest tragedy in London's history of any type happened in the 13th century, and it was a fire in the London Bridge area. It actually took root in Southwark. People rushed onto London Bridge to observe this fire, which was already killing people in Southwark and the wind blew embers across the Thames, setting fire to the north end of the bridge. So now the bridge is on fire at both ends with thousands of people on it, and people at both ends are also in properties that are on fire. The records of the day, and again, it's so long ago, they're a bit sketchy, but they suggest about 3,000 people died in that fire in just one small area of London. Uh, We can't be sure of the figures, but it would have been hundreds and hundreds, probably. They didn't just burn to death choked to death, crushed to death, jumping into the river and drowning, dying in lots of ways. But that was certainly a higher death toll than the Great Fire. Philip, I need to counter this with something cheerier. Uh, Dick Whittington. Well, now, I don't know anything about Dick Whittington except that he had a cat and he was Lord Mayor of London. And I'm not sure... One one of the things I've noticed with some of the statements that you're challenging here is that we've got to be a a bit cute about the precise language that's being used. So the the statement, as you've put it, is Dick Whittington was a a lowly farmer's boy who became Lord Mayor of London three times with help from his cat. (laughs) Yes, I'm kind of putting up there the pantomime uh, straw man to to knock down. Uh, There was a Dick Whittington, a Richard Whittington character in real life. He was a historical character. And he was Lord Mayor. He was Lord Mayor four times rather than three, three times often, said in the myth. He wasn't a poor boy from the countryside. He was quite a well-to-do son of a squire. I believe his father was maybe also an MP, uh, maybe even a noble, I can't quite remember. He came from a, a wealthy Gloucestershire family, so he wasn't some kind of country bumpkin. And um, his cat, it's, it's, obviously we don't know for sure whether he had a cat, but it is such a large part of the Whittington myth that it's worth looking, is there any evidence? And there is no real strong evidence that he ever had a cat or was ever associated with a cat in his own lifetime. Why would that become part of mythology anyway? I mean, lots of people have cats. 
Yeah, I, I guess even more so back then when rats and mice were more of a problem than they are now. I don't know, to be honest. I think it was one of those legends that grew into a fairy tale as time went on. I sort of feel like in order for that to take root, he would have either had to carry his cat around with him all the time or the cat would have had to have achieved something uh, <laughs> by itself. Well, certainly if he did have a cat, it wasn't the cat that made his fortune as it is in the pantomime. You may remember the story where the cat goes off on a sea voyage and becomes chief rat catcher on a ship and therefore the captain of the ship rewards Dick Whittington with lots of money when he comes back loaded with silks and spices. Uh, obviously that side didn't happen. There are a couple of ideas here which I've certainly heard regurgitated a number of times. They sound pretty far-fetched, but I'd like to hear them comprehensively knocked down. This one here, it is illegal to die in the Houses of Parliament. Sounds so crazy, it might just be true. This is hilarious, this one. I don't know why this one got started. Well, I've got a clue. I mean, if you die on Crown property in a palace or the Houses of Parliament, which are a palace, the Westminster Palace, so associated with royalty... If you die on that land, then you're under the jurisdiction of the royal coroner. So there are myths that have evolved that if you die on royal property, you get a royal funeral, and therefore that would be very expensive and time-consuming, so they've made it illegal to die on crown property to avoid that expense and time. It's complete rubbish. I mean, people die, not all the time in the House of Parliament, but over the centuries think how many millions of people go in and out of those buildings. Well, not... there's one big room for lots of very elderly people. Exactly, but um, I mean there are many examples chronicled of people dying in the House of Parliament there's most famously Spencer Percival the only Prime Minister to be assassinated was assassinated within the Houses of Parliament. But there's also a journalist died there in, I think it was the 30s lost from the history books, but I managed to dig it out of a newspaper archive and there was a, another MP was assassinated there in the 1970s. The IRA killed somebody there. Uh, none of these uh, were deemed illegal. And in fact, what would the punishment be if you were if you died in the House of Parliament? How would they punish you if it was illegal? We've got one here that has been. Now this has been delivered to me in what seems to be exactly the same form by a person professing to be an expert on London bridges, and I believed him. And I wonder if there's a trick in the wording. The the, the way this is phrased is old London Bridge was sold to a gullible American who thought he was buying Tower Bridge. Yes, this is the story of uh, McCulloch, the American businessman, bought London Bridge in the very late 60s. London Bridge was sold to this guy and he rebuilt it in Arizona. The myth is that he thought he was buying Tower Bridge, but there's lots and lots of evidence that he knew perfectly well what he was buying. Most saliently, the the city of London who sold the bridge produced a full-colour, glossy brochure to prospective buyers, showing them exactly what they were buying. And if you're going to invest millions and millions in a structure like that, you're not going to bypass all that literature and not make inquiries, are you? I'm not debunking this for the first time. It has been widely debunked by other people, most notably Travis Elbra, who I believe you've had on the show before. He's got a whole book about London Bridge and he's got a whole chapter about this myth and he gives various reasons why he thinks that McCulloch knew what he was doing. I'm persuaded so far. What have we got next? OK, this is another of those ones that seems too good to be true. You're never more than six feet away from a rat in London. Well, I think that's preposterous in this day and age. I think well, that's... Just a moment, let me have a little look. Well, we're not in London, though, are we? <laughs> no, we are. We, we... Scratchwood Services is just within the, the border of Greater London. However, I think we might run into legal trouble if we identify a rat, so... Yes. Um, 
I can't see. We can't, we can't. I can see a pudsy bear over there. That's the nearest we get. I think as a, a, a mammal of some description. Well, I always assume that this hinged on the sewer system. That if you if you went a number of feet down, then you'd hit a rat. Yeah, but bear in mind the sewers don't go under every square inch of London. They're only down the middle of every street. So this is jibber jabber. Yeah. I, it's probably, it may well have been true in Victorian times or Georgian times, but it's one of those sayings that's stayed with us down the ages and it's certainly not true anymore. There's still lots and lots of rats in London and their population is growing from what I understand. But also bear in mind, London has grown. So if you're at the top of a skyscraper, of course you're not six feet away from a rat. Mice sometimes get in those buildings, but rats very rarely will. There's this one to do with Savoy Court. There's a pub quiz trivia question that comes up and this is supposedly the correct answer to it but you're challenging this one. This is about driving on the left or driving on the right in London. Yeah, so Savoy Court, the entrance to the Savoy, well-known, as you say, piece of trivia, that you're supposed to drive on the right as you go in, and it's the only place in the UK where drivers are asked to drive on the right. It's one of these ones that's kind of got some truth to it, but many incorrect things as well. So you do drive on the right as you go in. That rule was brought in to allow people to access the hotel when cars were queuing to reach the Savoy Theatre, which is also down there. So you imagine cars waiting to pick up people coming out of the theatre, they all form a rank, and that meant people couldn't get round to access the doors of the Savoy Hotel because of the way the, si- the system was set up. So reversing the road system eased that, and to this day you drive on the right. But it's not the only place. So various bus garages around town, Hammersmith Garage, Victoria Garage, you, the buses drive on the right. OK, they're not... Normal drivers won't be using those, bus drivers will. But pedestrians still have to look out for that when they're crossing the roads. But there was a place in Tottenham, Tottenham Hale, used to have a dual carriageway where it was reversed and drivers were on the wrong side. There was a very clear central division so they wouldn't hit each other or get confused. But nevertheless, you would pass drivers on the wrong side of the car. It was a very strange way to drive. (laughs) And there are various other examples up and down the country. So Savoy Court is by no means the only place. The other mistake there is nearly always stated that it's by act of parliament that it's the only place you drive on the right. Now, I've spoken to the Savoy's archivist. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. And the hotel has its own archivist. Interesting job. And she assures me there is no act of parliament saying this. And I've looked through the record books. I can't see anything. Um, So that part of the myth is also made up. It's something the Savoy themselves insisted, rather than it being a government stipulation. Out of curiosity, how easy is that to find out the non-existence of a particular rule? Not too hard. All of these acts and uh, anything government is pretty much digitised and online or in archives and easy to search now by keyword and also I mean the date of the supposed act is also often given so you can check that date and years around it uh, in particular to see if you can find it. There is one particular string of facts and one particular guest who comes to mind in association with them I'm not going to out him there's a particular listener called HH Geek he goes by in the comment section and I think that listener will know exactly who I'm referring to. There may be a bit of schadenfreude going in here, I don't know. We have uh, fact number one. Trafalgar Square contains the world's smallest police station. 
I actually know the commenter you're referring to, actually. Uh, right, so this is another one of those half-truths. So there is something in the, I think it's the southeast corner of Trafalgar Square, which is a hollowed-out pillar, I suppose. Uh, in fact, it used to be a solid pillar, and they did hollow it out in the 1920s. And it's a kind of booth, a sort of place someone might stand and watch the square as a security guard or, in this case, a policeman or woman. Now, it has been used by the police over the years, but more as a, a watchtower rather than a police station. What do we mean by police station? I think, for me, that needs to have a, a counter where you can go and report crimes or maybe a prison cell to hold somebody, some kind of officialdom like that. This has none of that. It's just a, a, a pillar. I think it had a phone line for a time, but then you get police boxes, or you used to get police boxes all over the place with phones in them and you wouldn't call those police stations so it's on a technicality i don't think that's a police station well that's not much of a technical that's actually an, an enormous yeah. error isn't it we've got another one here eli place is technically in cambridgeshire and you can't be arrested there yeah, well that's certainly not true anymore it's definitely part of london i think it's in london borough of camden i don't know where the idea you can't be arrested there comes from so the, it used to be said that the metropolitan <laughs> it suggests that you can't get arrested in cambridge yeah uh, exactly but it well it was said that the metropolitan police or the city police couldn't make arrests there because they're not the cambridgeshire police but when did that ever stop police arresting someone but also i found accounts in newspaper articles i've actually done some research on this proper proper research rather than just perpetuating the story and I found several crimes that were committed down that street and the police just came straight in and arrested people. Of course. So, yeah. Of course. Uh, one more. London's equestrian statues conform to a hidden code. So this is quite a well-known bit of trivia that the way the horse's hooves are raised or, or otherwise tells you something biographical about the person riding the horse. So I think if all four legs are down, the person died of natural causes. If the horse is rearing up on two legs the person died in battle and the horse has one hoof in the air the person died potentially wounds on the battlefield but not during the military engagement if the horse has no hooves on the pedestal then the rider has bigger problems yes or he's plummeting off a cliff or something like that um I did actually an- analyse all, I think it's like 25 equestrian statues in London. and You, you, fi- you didn't really. You'll find them tabulated in the middle of the book <laughs> with ticks and crosses and whether they subscribe to this code or not. And it's can, I, can I just interject? <laughs> Listener, if you've not met Matt Brown before, and we should say he is the roving editor-at-large for Londonist, who previously the editor-in-chief. This is pure Matt Brown going on right now. <laughs> well, I used to be a scientist, so I do like my tables and graphs and proper data. Uh, yeah, only, I know, less than half of them bear any resemblance to, to this code. I feel a little bit ashamed because to a guiding question, it's probably identifiable. If you go back through a record, you might spot some of those facts. And I feel kind of bad. And I feel even worse because the penultimate myth that you debunk is London tour guides are full of rubbish. What kind of a statement is that to have to debunk in the first place, though? Well, that can, when you've read the rest of the book, I've been a bit uh, harsh of certain types of tour guides uh, throughout the book. Which, uh, which types? I'm not going to name organisations or people or anything, but there are certain... In, like in any profession, you get good tour guides, bad tour guides, and middle-of-the-road tour guides. Well, middle-of-the-road tour guide would soon go out of business through insurance claims, probably. But uh, there are tour guides who are apathetic and just do it 
because they've fallen into it or have lost the energy or whatever and they will just perpetuate myths and that's kind of where this book comes from and not just tour guides but writers of trivia books in general who just take received wisdom received myths and just perpetuate them I've been guilty of it myself over the years so this is a kind of antidote to all those kind of lazy facts trivia um, either tour guiding or books so I thought I'd do a little apology at the end to tour guides as a group because to use a famous defence some of my best friends are tour guides and I don't want to annoy them and I've had some many great days out um, this Saturday I'm going on a tour of the Swanscombe Peninsula a place I'd never normally go to uh, off my own bat but because I know a tour guide who's touring there I'm going I love going on these things but I have been a little bit critical of them throughout so I thought I would just debunk it and say what wonderful people many of them are this is a good opportunity to clue in somebody maybe who, who doesn't go on that many guided tours. What are the warning signs of a bad tour guide? I think, well, the really sort of mass-produced aims at the tourists who haven't done their homework, those who are only going to show you like, the big sites, Buckingham Palace and the London Eye and things like that, they have their place. I mean, if you're new to London and you know nothing about the city and you really want to see those places, I'm sure they'll do a good job of it. I but they, they, they often spread themselves quite thin. Certain of them will also tour Stonehenge or Edinburgh or Stratford-upon-Avon, and they only have this kind of very broad knowledge rather than a detailed knowledge and might not be able to address any particular questions you have, and some will. So the best ones to look out for, especially if you're a Londoner and you want to learn more about your city, and maybe independent tour guides, as long as they've got some kind of qualification or some kind of expertise behind them, then go for those one especially ones who do off the beaten track tours i've done some really good tours around places you wouldn't think to go on a tour dagenham docks for example or deptford high street parts of town that tourists would never ever go to but they have interesting social histories and there are tour guides who will focus on those areas this almost doesn't feel like it fits into the general flow of the facts that are being represented here it's certainly not the sort of thing that a tour guide would need to address you debunk here the fact in the section subterranean london this fact always remember to touch in and touch out ah well that's actually a poem would you like me to read it from the book i certainly would well this is a new experience for me i'm i'm sitting in a motorway service station while a man prepares to read a poem to me i feel this should be a part of life that i build into my everyday routine Okay, this, this one's just a bit of fun. So anyone who's used the tube system will know that we're always encouraged to touch in and touch out whenever we use the system. And it's become a bit of a mantra for Transport for London. But this poem debunks the fact that you should always touch in and touch out because there are many exceptions. Always touch in and always touch out when using your contactless card. Except on a bus where you only touch in. Remember, it isn't that hard. Always touch in and always touch out when seeking to travel by rail. Except on the tram down Old Croydon Way, where touch-outs would count as a fail. Always touch in and always touch out, but don't touch a thing in the middle. Except if you travel through some outer zones, where pink touchpads add to the riddle. Always touch in and always touch out, your card works on all transport modes. Except on the bikes, to hire one of those, you must stick around with pin codes. Always touch in and always touch out, you don't need to wait in a line. Except on the clippers where tickets are king, you'll need one to ride on the brine. Always touch in and always touch out, you'll soon reach your maximum cap. Except on the javelin and Thames cable car, 
who both give your wallet a slap. Always touch in and always touch out, you'll find you can board any train. Except for the grouchy old Heathrow Express, conformity is such a pain. Always touch in and always touch out, for Oyster is now here to stay. Except that we're shifting to contactless cards and hipsters all use Apple Pay. <laughs> that poem has since come out of date because the Clippers, the Thames River boats, uh, they now accept Oyster cards, so you just touch in to use those. It's a perilous business committing ideas and words and facts to paper, isn't it? Because they shift and, and time does that for you. One of the ones notable here on page 107, Boris Johnson is the Lord Mayor of London and clearly we're going to be taking apart the idea of him being Lord Mayor as opposed to Mayor, but that whole political landscape has shifted so dramatically. Indeed. I mean, to address the first point, uh, it's often confused, and it is confusing, frankly, isn't it, that we have several mayors in London, most famously the, the Mayor of London, uh, formerly Boris Johnson, now Sadiq Khan. Which, which reminds me, actually, with the mood in the country as we record this. I think there's one fact here that might well be worth lingering on, which is the following. Before the 1950s, London was very white and very English. Yes, so again, this is one of those half-truth ones. Of course, it was far more so than it is today. We've had immigration from all kinds of countries and all kinds of people moving here in the, the decades since the 50s. But the 50s is often given as a watershed where lots of people would think of it as before that. There was nobody who had any kind of background other than white English in the country. And, of course, that was certainly not true. The, the docks in London in particular have brought people from all over the world here for many centuries. And in certain parts of the East End, there had been a, a wide range of peoples throughout all periods of London's history. Even back to Tudor times, there would have been people from the Levant and the Middle East and, and some even from Africa. Uh, so it wouldn't have been an entirely white city. It would have been one of the most multicultural cities in the, in, the, in the kingdom and in Europe for a long part of its history. I've been picking out the facts that interest me and I'm definitely going to jump on a trio of ideas here all to do with how we articulate stuff around London. Uh, are you pronouncing it wrongly? Spelling and punctuation and that's not my name, which we could, we could treat all as one. Before we do that though, which are your favourites here? So my favourite is actually not a particular fact but a building because it accumulates myths like nothing else and that building is the Tower of London. You can think of four or five things people think they know about the Tower that aren't actually true. The most unbelievable, right, we think of it as this place of Tudor executions and blood and uh, tragedy from that era. In fact, more people were executed in the Tower of London in the 20th century than all of the centuries put together. Mostly during the First World War, I think it's 18 or 19 people were put to firing squad, uh, German spies in the First World War, and one guy in the Second World War. Added together, that's more than all the Tudor executions and everything since then, just in the 20th century. I, th I find that remarkable. 20th century, the worst time for the Tower. The other thing about the Tower, a lot of people think is true, that the ravens of the Tower, there's this legend goes alongside them that when they flee, the kingdom will fall and that they've been there since time immemorial as protectors of the, the Tower. In fact, the myth was made up in the 1940s. That there was no myth before that about them fleeing and the Tower crumbling. And indeed, there is no evidence of any ravens being present in the Tower before about 1880. 
and there's actually an academic paper has been published on this subject. There's a similar myth that attends our current location, which is that if all of the slot machines go unplayed, then scratchwood services will fall. <laughs> Could well be true. There's, there's one guy playing something in there, so we're OK at the, top at the moment. Let's get linguistic. Uh, what about these pronunciations? And I hope there's going to be an apostrophe issue going on here somewhere. Well, yeah, so the apostrophes are wonderful talking points. I did an article on Londonist a couple of years ago should King's Cross have an apostrophe or not that had something like 20 times more comments than any kind of political or opinion piece we've ever done people love pedantry over language Uh, King's Cross is particularly interesting that apostrophe comes and goes over the years with a a real freedom Uh, there, there seems to be no official stance on whether it should or should not currently the apostrophe is enjoying a renaissance it's usually given but you've got to go back 20 years and virtually no one uses it network rail weren't using it tfl weren't using it but nowadays it seems to be back but that's contrary to wider trends apostrophes are disappearing from our language bit by bit and certainly in place names because they're not really useful not at least in place names they're just labels for areas they're not grammar as such they're they're just labels so why why bother Uh, especially when you've got urls and hashtags and things like that that they just get in the way really don't they with our modern technology it helps you to understand what the words actually mean that seems kind of important and particularly when um, you think about the way in which history is preserved in in some places only through the place names King's Cross does, you're right, come from a monument to George IV, which once stood in the area. Previously it was called Battle Bridge, around that area. An unpopular monument, demolished within a few years, but the name lingered, King's Cross, with a possessive apostrophe, the cross to the king. But does that help us to keep that apostrophe now? That history is well chronicled all over the history books. There's no way we're going to forget that. Keeping the apostrophe just gets in the way, I think. What about, are are you pronouncing it wrongly? Yeah, so I've purposely given a slightly grammatically (laughs) unusual title to that. In fact, I think my editor did that. So so London is full of place names. It's one of these cities where we talked about immigration and and different nationalities earlier. Waves of immigration have affected London over the years, and so too the place names. So we have places like Thaden Boys out in the edges of London near Essex. Uh, A French-sounding name, it goes back to Norman times. People often mispronounce it as, or, or don't know whether it's boys or bois or Vaden or Faden. I think it's Faden boys is the correct way to do it. But I've got a compendium in there of various places like that to clarify. It just occurred to me on controversial buildings, the, the other guaranteed comment generator on Londonist is if you put an article up about the correct name of the tower on the, uh, the Houses of Parliament. Oh, this is. Probably the inspiration behind this whole book is Big Ben, right? So everybody calls it Big Ben. I will champion its being called Big Ben. I think that's the most suitable name. I know full well that's officially the name of the bells, but names are all the time applied the same name to multiple things. I'm called Matt. There are millions of other people in the world called Matt, and no one gets confused. Why can't we have the tower and the bells being called Big Ben? It's what everyone else calls it. So, But the pedanticism is... Big Ben is the Bells, the tower should be called St. Stephen's Tower. Now, in the book, I counter that and say the tower was never officially called St. Stephen's Tower. That itself is a myth perpetuated by journalists. The official name of the tower was always the Clock Tower, and nothing more elaborate than that. Until two or three years ago, 
when it officially changed to the Elizabeth Tower, which I hated because now there is a definitive answer and <laughs> I can't use this pedantry anymore. It definitely is the Elizabeth Tower now. But I still maintain it should be Big Ben. We are charging, we're hurtling towards the back end of the show this week. One item here that caught my eye in a section called Plaques That Got It Wrong. Alongside Bankside, Oddness, Deliberate Typos, Dickensian Duncery. The one I really wanted you to unpack was the Apologetic Plaque. Okay, so I've got a whole section on plaques because there's a surprising number across town that are incorrect or on the wrong building or mistaken in their facts in some way. Uh, This particular one, the apologetic plaque, I think it must be unique. There can't be many plaques that apologise to passers-by. And this is on a building in Bloomsbury, adjacent to the School of Oriental and African Studies, part of the University of London. And it seems the building was erected in the 1980s without the official consent of the landowner. And this was the, I think it was the, the Duke of Bedford or the Russell family. Uh, they had a clause in any, anyone who wanted to build on their land, uh, they, they give out leaseholds to people, they have to have the final say on the plans. And it seems that they weren't consulted in this case and the building went up without their approval. And so they've been forced to put a plaque on the wall apologising to the landowner uh, using words that the landowner themselves chose on that plaque. What does it say? Let me just find the quote. The University of London hereby records its sincere apologies that the plans of this building were settled without due consultation with the Russell family and their trustees, and therefore without the approval of its design. <laughs> Something very British about that. And the thing is, it's the most, I don't know, it's a fairly nondescript building, but it, it fits in with the, the wider street scene. It's a very sympathetic building to its surroundings, the sort of building that wouldn't offend anybody in any way, and yet it carries an apology. <laughs> going to finish on one that may be very short we may be able to dispatch it in just a moment you may remember bob holness who used to host countdown affable sort of chap the urban legend is that he played the soaring saxophone solo on jerry rafferty's baker street yes utterly made up as bob himself confirmed and jerry rafferty's confirmed that's one of those urban myths that came from nowhere and there are two or three people who actually claim to have started the rumors actually i can't remember who they were one's a uh, another musician claims he came up there another is a quite well-known dj uh, and i think there's a third person who came up there it's all just made up um, but the one fact about bob holness that seems to be true is that he was one of the first people to play james bond in a radio show in the 1960s uh, before sean connery or the 1950s i should say before sean connery bob holness was on radio as james bond I think that's a suitably climactic (laughs) point on which to end. Everything You Know About London Is Wrong by Matt Brown is available. It's uh, published by Batsford. It's in shops now. Rush out and uh, purchase one. You can get it, of course, online. And, Matt, you're still writing for Londoners and producing all sorts of fact-filled, with the emphasis under fact, fact (laughs) fact-filled articles. That's right. I'm I'm still editor at Large Londonist, uh, working most days on something or other for the site. I'm also working on a sequel to this book, which is everything you know about science is wrong, which will be out in February. Matt Brown, thanks very much. Thank you. And ordinarily, this is where this week's episode would stop. We'd have a little bit of music. We'll still have a little bit of music, just so you know we're, we're at the back end. But uh, having debunked 
all of these London myths, we felt it's kind of important to put some in their place. So you're going to hear a new series of completely incorrect facts about London courtesy of Matt Brown. Did you know one of the ravens at the Tower of London is actually albino? To maintain appearances, the raven masters coat the bird in special formulation tar every fortnight. Look out for the bird with the pink eyes. German Street, that's J-E-R-M-Y-N Street in St. James, is a contraction of Jeremy Corbyn Street. The controversial politician was born at number 87. Tower Bridge has a hidden setting that allows the road bascules to slope down into the Thames. The feature provides landing ramps for ferries whenever the bridge is closed for repair. The statue of Eros actually depicts Prince Voltan, Brian Blessed's character in Flash Gordon. The film received its premiere at the nearby Odeon Cinema. The Queen does not own her own corgis. They are rented from Battersea Dogs and Cats Home. To achieve its graceful curves, the Gherkin skyscraper is clad in futuristic hybrid glass. The advanced material is repellent to water, so window cleaners must use vinegar to wipe the surface. 